Welcome to the Sandra Day O'Connor Institute Emerging Leaders Network Civics for Life podcast. Today is our third installment of Civics, What You Need to Know, our special guide to the foundational principles of American democracy. Part three, individual rights. The American Declaration of Independence famously states, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. These words were radical and unprecedented at the time of their writing in 1776. The equality of all men, or all people, and the existence of inherent rights given to all by God rather than by a monarch had never before been asserted by a people in a founding national document. Inspired in part by the Declaration, in the years immediately followed by its signing, five of the 13 states abolished slavery or set a timetable for its abolition. However, by the time the Constitution was written and adopted in 1789, slavery was nonetheless enshrined into law and voting rights were limited to white landowning men 21 years of age and older. Over the decades, more and more groups would cite the words of the Declaration of Independence as they came to demand equal rights. The Constitution, as originally proposed and submitted for ratification to the states, specifically guaranteed only a few rights. Just as concerns about having a too strong central government compared to the states had led to the development of the concept of federalism, concerns about a central government having too much power over individuals led to the drafting of the Bill of Rights. The first 10 amendments to the Constitution are known collectively as the Bill of Rights and have become integral to the American vision of government. The Bill of Rights summarized the First Amendment freedom of speech, freedom of the press, freedom of religion, freedom of assembly, and freedom to petition the government for redress of grievances. The Second Amendment, the right to bear arms. In full, quote, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed, end quote. The Third Amendment, freedom from having to house or quarter soldiers. The Fourth Amendment, freedom from unreasonable search and seizure. The Fifth Amendment, prevention of being charged for the same crime twice, known as double jeopardy. Prevention from being compelled to testify against oneself, from being deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, and from property being taken by the government without just compensation. The Sixth Amendment, right to be informed of charges filed when accused of a crime, the right to a speedy trial by jury, the right to a lawyer, and the right to call witnesses. The Seventh Amendment, the right to a jury trial in civil cases with a value over $20. The Eighth Amendment, freedom from cruel and unusual punishment. The Ninth Amendment, protection of other individual rights not listed in the Constitution. And the Tenth Amendment, the states or the people reserve any powers not given to the federal government or prohibited to the states. Only after the supporters of the Constitution promised to have the first Congress submit the Bill of Rights through the amendment process did a sufficient number of states agree to ratify the new Constitution. Thus, in some sense, the Bill of Rights is responsible for the existence of the United States as we know it. Still today, these are some of the strongest individual rights in the entire world. The First Amendment right to free speech, for example, is nearly absolute, permitting obscenities and offensive comments that many other countries do not allow. The principle behind this wide-ranging freedom has been summarized as, quote, I disapprove of what you say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it, end quote. 
During the Civil War, President Abraham Lincoln drew upon the ideals of the Declaration of Independence to argue for the abolition of slavery. In his famous Gettysburg Address, he cited, quote, the proposition that all men are created equal, end quote, and called for a new birth of freedom to live up to that ideal. After the war, three additional constitutional amendments were passed that directly impacted individual rights. The 13th Amendment abolishing slavery, the 14th Amendment preventing race-based discrimination by states and requiring states to uphold the equal protection of the laws for all people, and the 15th Amendment stating that race could not be used to exclude someone from the right to vote. The next major attempt to expand individual rights to a new group, the suffragette movement, had begun in 1848 and picked up in the 1870s, seeking to extend the right to vote to women. After a decades-long campaign started by leaders including Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony, the 19th Amendment to the Constitution was passed in 1920, stating that the right to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. Over the decades, as the Roaring Twenties gave way to the Great Depression, then World War II, then the Korean War, discrimination against African Americans and prevention of their full enjoyment of individual rights, including the right to vote, was still widespread. Some 90 years after the abolition of slavery, the 14th and 15th Amendments were not in practice fulfilling their intended goal of providing full legal equality to African Americans. The fight to change this sorry state of affairs became known as the Civil Rights Movement. The first major success in extending individual rights to African Americans came in 1954, when the Supreme Court ruled in the famous case, Brown v. Board of Education of Topeka, that the separate but equal doctrine allowing segregated schools for white and non-white students was an unconstitutional violation of the Equal Protection Clause. This landmark ruling meant that all state laws segregating schools were now null and void, and the federal government had the power to enforce their repeal. Plans were drawn up for integrating African-American students into previously all-white schools throughout the South. The first to be ready for implementation was in Little Rock, Arkansas. In 1957, nine African-American students attempted to enter Little Rock Central High School, where they had officially enrolled. However, the governor of Arkansas, Orville Favis, deployed the Arkansas National Guard to physically block the students from entering the building. After three weeks of unsuccessful negotiations, President Dwight Eisenhower sent the 101st Airborne Division of the U.S. Army to enforce the integration of the school and federalized the Arkansas National Guard, taking it out of Governor Faubus's control. The students, who came to be known as the Little Rock Nine, were then able to attend the school. This was a dramatic demonstration of the federal government's new and growing role as the guarantor of individual rights throughout the country. It also reinforced the supremacy of federal law and federal courts over state laws and courts whenever the two conflicted. Similar fights and eventual intervention of federal officials would occur when Ruby Bridges attempted to enroll at William Franz Elementary School in New Orleans, Louisiana, as well as when two African-American men attempted to enter the University of Alabama. In the latter case, Alabama Governor George Wallace personally blocked the door to the university before being removed, attempting to make good on his promise in his inaugural speech to support, quote, segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever, end quote. John F. Kennedy, during his campaign for president in 1960, pledged to fight for civil rights legislation that would finally eliminate segregation and outlaw race-based discrimination in all areas of life. He won the election, but was not able to pass the civil rights laws he envisioned before being assassinated in 1963. 
His successor, Lyndon Johnson, was able to use his formidable negotiating abilities in combination with the wave of sympathy generated by President Kennedy's death to pass a raft of civil rights laws over his nearly two terms in office. The Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, the 24th Amendment to the Constitution banning poll taxes, and the Fair Housing Act of 1968. These laws collectively eliminated legalized race-based discrimination throughout the United States. While the Supreme Court had struck down the Civil Rights Act of 1875 based on a narrow interpretation of the 14th Amendment, the position of the Supreme Court had shifted substantially in the ensuing 90 years. The court upheld all of the 1960s civil rights bills, citing the federal government's enumerated power to regulate interstate commerce, known as the Commerce Clause. They also cited the 14th Amendment and the 15th Amendment as sufficient authority for the various federal laws banning racial discrimination. Extensions of individual rights to additional groups has continued since the civil rights era, from giving 18-year-olds the right to vote via the 26th Amendment in 1971 to the Supreme Court's legalization of same-sex marriage in 2015 in the case Obergefell v. Hodges. Debate also continues over which rights are or should be guaranteed by our legal system. Is there a right to an education, for example? Right to an abortion? What about the rights of children? The Supreme Court ruled in the 1989 case, DeShaney v. Winnebago County, that children do not have a constitutional right to be protected from abuse by their parents, even if the state knows the child is being abused. Should that be the case? Questions like these can only be answered by vigorous debate and engagement in the political process. The various roles of the court system, the presidency, and Congress lead us to the final defining piece of the American structure of government. Separation of Powers Representative democracy, federalism, and individual rights are all important concepts for any engaged citizen to know. But how do they relate to the actual machinery of government, its day-to-day -day functioning? We've already discussed how the Constitution divides power between the state governments and the federal government. But as an additional layer of protection to prevent the accumulation of too much power at the federal level, the framers of the Constitution laid out a unique system that divided the federal government itself into three separate branches, the legislative branch, the executive branch, and the judicial branch. In a parallel to federalism, each branch was given various specific and exclusive responsibilities. The legislative branch was to write the laws, the executive branch was to carry out and enforce the laws, and the judicial branch was to judge disputes arising under the laws. This division of labor had several goals. First of all, as mentioned earlier, it aimed to limit federal power. The framers expected the legislative branch, Congress, to accrue the most power. So for this reason, among others, they decided on a further subdivision of the legislative branch into two parts, the Senate and the House of Representatives. Each branch was to be elected separately and in different fashions, as also mentioned earlier. Two senators from each state would be elected for six-year terms, while representatives, whose number would grow in proportion to the population of their states, would be elected by the people in local districts every two years. Bills would need to be passed by both the Senate and the House and then be signed by the President in order to become law. The second goal of the separation of powers was to ensure that each branch of government, Congress, the President, and the courts, could specialize in its responsibilities and carry out its particular duties efficiently. Critically, this allowed for a vigorous executive, directly accountable to the people and able to act quickly in times of emergency or war. 
An independent executive branch seems natural to us today, but in a parliamentary system such as that in the United Kingdom, Canada, Australia, and other former British colonies, there is no separation at all between the executive and legislative functions of government. The prime minister is simply a member of parliament and the leader of the majority party, which can make legislating more efficient. However, Alexander Hamilton in The Federalist Number no. 70 argues that this is not necessarily a good thing. Quote, in the legislature, promptitude of decision is oftener an evil than a benefit. The differences of opinion and the jarrings of parties in that department of the government, though they may sometimes obstruct salutary plans, yet often promote deliberation and circumspection and serve to check excesses in the majority. End quote. The third goal of splitting the government was to create a system of checks and balances among the three branches. By setting up a structure that allowed each branch to check or restrain the activities of the other two branches, the framers hoped to channel the natural ambition of individuals in government into something productive, that is, confronting the excessive ambition of other aspiring government leaders who would be viewed as competitors. So how did the checks and balances work? In the digital version of this guide online, you can see a diagram explaining the checks and balances in the U.S. federal government. This graphic explains the specific actions that each branch is empowered to take to hold the other two branches accountable. There is a symmetrical, almost circular nature of the diagram. Each power that a branch has over another branch can be restrained, at least in part, by that other branch. For example, Congress can pass laws, but the president can veto laws, restraining the legislative branch. Congress can then override the president's veto with a two-thirds majority, restraining the executive branch. Congress can also impeach the president. Impeachment is the process by which Congress puts elected officials on trial for, quote, treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors, as laid out in the Constitution. The process begins in the House of Representatives. If a majority of the House votes for impeachment, the matter is sent to the Senate. The Senate acts as a jury, and a two-thirds majority vote is required for conviction. In the history of the United States, two presidents have been impeached by the House, Andrew Johnson and Bill Clinton, and both were acquitted by the Senate, so they were not removed from office. One thing the founders did not anticipate was the significant growth in the power of the executive branch. This has been largely facilitated by technologies such as radio, first used by President Calvin Coolidge in 1923, and then television, starting with President Harry Truman in 1947, which allowed the president to speak directly to the American people in real time and shape public opinion in a way that was not possible when the Constitution was written in the 18th century. This, in combination with Congress's voluntary surrender of many powers to the presidency over the years, has somewhat upset the system of checks and balances as originally intended, according to historians like Ray Raphael. Quote, if you just took the founders at the Constitutional Convention and how they envisioned the presidency compared to the presidency today, they would be absolutely aghast. They had no idea that they were going to create a single individual with this sort of powers. If you're talking original intent of the framers, they saw a much more limited role than we have today. End quote. Thus, in reality, the balance of power can shift over time, and things do not always work as cleanly and simply as the checks and balances diagram suggests. There are gray areas that allow each branch occasionally to find ways to exceed their traditional authority. There's been substantial debate over the following situations, for example, in various instances. First example, whether the courts have overstepped their bounds from interpreting the law to actually making the law, usurping the legislative branch. This can be heard in concerns about overzealous judges who attempt to, quote, legislate from the bench. 
Another example is whether a president is enforcing the laws as Congress passed and intended them, or is in fact interpreting them in a way that alters their intended outcome, usurping the legislative and judicial branches. And another possibility or debate is whether Congress has the right to interfere in foreign negotiations, usurping the executive branch. To some extent, the push and pull between the branches in these situations is exactly what the Founding Fathers intended. The challenge today is to ensure that the partisan rancor surrounding these discussions does not bring the policy-making process to a grinding halt and prevent the discussion, development, and implementations of solutions to the challenges America faces. One critically important aspect of the separation of powers is the independence of the judiciary. This refers to the ability of federal courts and judges to make decisions based solely on the law rather than political pressure. For example, the president cannot call the justices of the Supreme Court and order them to rule in a certain way, and Congress cannot pass a law overruling or ignoring the decision of a federal court. Overruling a Supreme Court decision requires a constitutional amendment. To ensure the judiciary's independence, federal judges are appointed for life terms, meaning they stay in their positions until they resign, die, or are impeached, which is very rare. This frees up judges to make decisions based only on the merits of each case, rather than having to worry about how ruling one way or another will affect their re-election prospects or their favor with a particular political party. An independent judiciary is considered critical to any functioning modern democracy. Poland faced widespread criticism in 2018 and protests throughout the country following efforts by its ruling party to roll back the independence of the judiciary and increase the influence of the parliament on legal decisions. Authoritarian regimes, such as those found in Russia and China, are notorious for the political influence they exert on their court systems, tipping the scales against people selected for punishment by the government. The idea that all persons and corporations are equal before the law, agreements will be enforced fairly for all parties, and no one is above the law regardless of their power or influence, is known as the rule of law. Maintaining the rule of law through an independent judiciary is key to maintaining and generating trust in government among the general public as well as businesses. Since the misdeeds of any government agency or public official can be challenged in court, ensuring the integrity of the courts also gives teeth to the system of checks and balances inherent in the separation of powers. Summary and conclusion. The four concepts we've covered, representative democracy, federalism, individual rights, and separation of powers, are only a springboard and a starting point for further learning on your journey to active civic engagement. As a refresher, number one, the United States is not a direct democracy where every person can vote on every law, and a simple majority can overrule the minority in any situation. Rather, we are a representative democracy through a constitutional republic. We elect individuals to represent us in the lawmaking process, and those individuals are constrained by the structures outlined in the Constitution. Number two, the system of federalism distributes power between the state governments and the federal government. While the federal government has increased its relative power significantly since the founding of the country, the states retain broad autonomy, including outsized influence in the Electoral College and the U.S. Senate. Number three, part of the story of the United States is the constant striving to live up to the ideals enshrined in the Declaration of Independence, that all men are created equal and are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Over time, individual rights have been extended and guaranteed to more and more groups, leaving bigotry and injustice discarded in the wake of their forward progress. 
And number four, the separation of powers into three branches of government in concert with a system of checks and balances, an independent judiciary and the rule of law is designed to prevent the accumulation of too much power in the hands of a small number of people and to ensure equality in the eyes of the law. These four ideas form the bedrock of the American system of government and are critical to understanding how it functions. The overview of each idea provided in this guide can serve as a valuable first step in gaining a better understanding of the unique story of America, the ideals and goals behind the different aspects and structures of our government, and a sense of what role you want to play in driving the United States through the pages of history on the road to freedom and justice for all. The rest is up to you. As Justice O'Connor was known to say, it's not enough to understand. You've got to do something. Thank you for listening to this production of Civics, What You Need to Know by the Sandra Day O'Connor Institute Emerging Leaders Network. We'd love to hear from you. If you have any feedback, questions, or comments, reach out to us anytime at eln at o'connorinstitute.org. That's our email address. Or visit our website anytime, o'connoreln.org. 